Ladies and gentlemen, we have a very provocative and interesting conversation that will be heralded by Stephen Furtick and hosted by T.D. Jakes, myself. Stephen Furtick is the lead pastor of the Elevation Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. He and his wife, Holly, founded Elevation in 2006 with seven other families. Today, the church has grown to over 20,000 members and continues to escalate with 14 different locations, the most recent being in Charlotte, North Carolina. He holds a master's degree of divinity from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of multiple books, Sun Stand Still, two New York Times best-selling releases, Greater and Crash in the Chatterbox, and Unqualified. Would you welcome Stephen Furtick? How are you today, sir? Thank you, Bishop. I'm great. Glad to have you here, uh, that you would take the time to share with us. This is a very interesting time in your life. What does it feel like to be you right now? At this very moment, it is intimidating to be talking with Bishop Jakes about <laughs> leadership. Beyond that, we're having fun. I got three kids under the age of 12, so it's... um really a cool time within our church and our ministry, you know, the the model of church that we have with multiple campuses, it really keeps the leadership development demand high. And so our priority is always developing leaders and we're learning a lot right now. We're we're having having a blast, so hanging on. You know, you uh came into a lot of power, a lot of influence, uh a lot of demands, a lot of stress early in your life. Uh, would you mind sharing with my audience how old you are? I'm 36. And how old were you when you started? 25. 25. How did that affect you from 25 <laughs> to 36 to find yourself with unprecedented growth? It's not the kind of growth that normally is associated with someone so young and so fast. Uh, what were some of the challenges of building the organization that you built? I think it damaged me permanently. I don't think I'll ever, I don't think I'll ever be normal because, you know, in in all seriousness, we were starting the church in an age of social media too. And so not only was I learning how to be a pastor, but I didn't have enough sense to not put all my stuff online early and, you know, blog early and everything we were figuring out, we were figuring out in an age where you kind of grow up in front of everyone So I feel kind of like one of those childhood TV actors Mm -hmm. where our church grew to thousands of people pretty rapidly, and I was 27, 28 years old, and people were coming into our church and wanting to learn about leadership, and meanwhile, I'm learning how to be a dad and learning how to be a pastor. I've been preaching since I was 16, so I was familiar with that part of it, but all of the leadership stuff, you know, I'm guessing at it and learning as I go, but in a pretty visible spot. So I hope it hasn't arrested my development. I mean, I think <laughs> I'm proud of everything back then. The, the church has seen me with all kinds of hairstyles and terrible fashion choices and all of that that comes with being in your 20s. I think one of the things that it did really early was it forced me to grow up quickly and to surround myself with good people early. And I've always had people in my life that were a lot farther along than me, and that saved my life. You talked about the fashion choices jokingly and all that sort of thing. 
And it was kind of out of the box. You went to a very conservative university. You have a lot of very conservative friends. Many people who admire and respect you are people of my generation. And yet you have this fresh, the young people call it a fresh style of delivery out of the box, not traditional. You're not always suited and booted with shirts and ties. That actually turned out to be a strength for you, it seems. And if so, can you explain why? Yeah, I think so. And sometimes it's actually discouraging that I'll put a post on Instagram recapping my sermon and there will be more comments about my sneakers than the sermon. You know, 80% of the comments will be about your J's and they don't even remember that you were in Ephesians 3. And uh, other times, though, it's a point of connection. I mean, it really is amazing to me how many people will say, that they came in the door or got somebody through the door because it was more casual. For me, I can't say it was so strategic. I don't think it was a calculated choice. It was more comfortable. And a lot of that may be cultural as well. I mean, I I was born into a certain time. That wasn't really a pioneering move. A lot of people had already dressed down certain things. So I don't think it was as groundbreaking in my mind. You know, a lot of the early stuff we did, the, the ways we did it, We were just ignorant. We didn't know we were breaking certain rules, and that turned out to be a strength, too. You know, a lot of it was what we didn't know. If I would have known what I was actually doing or how people felt about it, I might not have tried it. But a lot of the things we did, we didn't know that they were controversial. We didn't know they were edgy. They were just intuitive to us. You know, one of the things that really fascinated me, in the scriptures, the Bible says that the Roman soldiers had to hire Judas to pick out Jesus, which basically means he looks so much like his contemporaries that there was nothing unique or outstanding about him. And looking like your peers has a lot to do with who your peers are. Do you agree with that? And how much are you a reflection of the era and the generation and the people with whom you're associated? I totally agree with it. And I think that to suggest that suit and tie is more traditional now than jeans and sneakers misses the whole point of the conversation. I think that the style that we currently call contemporary is traditional by the time everybody catches on to it. (laughs) And so for me, that has very little to do with relevance. I mean, I really believe that although it may be an entry point, and I joke about people making comments about it and being attracted to it, paying more attention to it, I really do think that that is a very small part of what made the church successful. I think the values of excellence, the values of being relatable, the practicality of what we were doing in the early days drew people. Yeah, there was a buzz factor. I mean, one of the things that happened early in our church, Bishop, that I didn't plan for, but I found out looking back on it, is that a lot of high school kids were coming over to Elevation Church because their parents thought it was a cult and they thought it'd be cool to go to the church that their parents (laughs) didn't like. And so they're sneaking over almost like they're smoking a joint out back, you know, coming to my church. And again, I didn't know this was happening. And their parents would follow them over and find out, you know, I got to see what this verdict is preaching over here at this evolution church. And they'd get there (laughs) and they'd, they'd like the message. They'd like the mission. And they even liked being able to dress down a little bit. And They didn't like it loud, and so we'd put earplugs at the door. And a lot of the intergenerational ministry that we had wasn't by us planning. You know, we didn't build a $5 million youth building. We were renting high school auditoriums, loading in, loading out, 
it wasn't about the style. It, it wasn't even the flashiness, the lights and the smoke and some of these things you can do later on. I think more than that, it was the passion that was attractive. So when we try to make relevance a function of style, I think we miss the entire point of what's truly attracting people when we get beneath the surface of why we think they're coming. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's something I've thought about a whole lot. Well, it makes a whole lot of sense. You're simply saying to me that I can't go out there and pick up a pair of skinny jeans and be guaranteed that I'm going to have 20,000 members in a year just because we have a dressed down format or a dressed up format or clergy collars or robes or whatever your tradition or ideology may be. And I certainly think it's an injustice to assume that it is the external that causes people to come when, in fact, there is a passion and a burning obviously in your heart to draw that many people. I want to talk a little bit about the diversity and the kinds of people. Having been to your church and also researched your church, your church is multicultural, multi-denominational, multi-generational. You've got people of all cultures, colors, and kinds simultaneously attending your church. Were you surprised by that? And how has that changed the way you pastor? Well, when we started, it was one black couple in the church, and no matter what I did or what I said, it felt like I could only attract white people, and I felt that to be a failure the first couple of years, and then I came into realizing that some of the things that were in my heart were going to take time, and the seven couples I started the church with were all young white couples, minus the one couple. I realized it was going to take some time for all of it to come to pass, and It was really a slow thing. There was not some cataclysmic turning point where now all of a sudden I felt that we were a multicultural church. And it was important to me that we didn't just use lingo. I hear a lot of people talking about multi-ethnic and multi-generational. But for me, I felt like if what we did was powerful enough and we continued to be strategic about trying to represent different cultures, that it would happen I did feel like it would be cheesy, though, for me to say, let's have Black Gospel Choir Sunday once a month, and then maybe Black people will come. That was never my approach to it. I mean, I really came up through so many different styles of church. I was the only white kid in my high school's Black Gospel Choir, and I was the only white kid in my college's Black Gospel Choir. It was called Black Student Fellowship until I joined it. And they had to change the name of it because I joined it to Brothers and Sisters Fellowship so they could keep the acronym BSF. And it was in my heart. It wasn't, for me, a master plan to reach a larger demographic. It really wasn't even that much of a values question for me as it was a part of me. And so um, people would say things to me over the years when we would try to do things stylistically that weren't just typical white church or weren't just young, you know, whether it's a hymn for somebody who's older, I would say that's in me. My grandfather is a Methodist minister. So all of these things, whether multi-generational or multicultural, I think they were embedded in me through my life experiences, through most of my middle school years, I was on the wrestling team. I was one of the only white guys on my wrestling team. So it was never going to suit me to have an all-white church. I couldn't have lived that way. I didn't want to preach in an all-white church. I didn't want to sing in an all-white church. And so every time I would see a little opportunity when God would send us someone who looked different, who had a different perspective, I would try to push them to the forefront as much as I could. And uh, now I look around, Bishop, and we see our church is 35% African-American, 
I have some campuses that are very, very white, some campuses that are mostly black, some campuses that are older, country campuses. It's, it's a challenge because I could take you on a tour of Elevation Church campuses, and based on which campus you attended, you would feel like you were in a different church, but they're all watching the same sermon, singing the same set list of songs. It's highly centralized. And it's something that we're trying to figure out. Our leadership is not as diverse as it needs to be yet. I just came out of a meeting talking about that today, challenging my team today. It's not as easy as I thought it would be. You know, it's not just everybody singing on a Unity Sunday. There's a whole lot more systems behind it than there is sentiment. And these are things we're all trying to figure out. You know, I I described it to a friend of mine just earlier today. We were talking about having churches that are diverse, not only racially, but politically, and having churches that are diverse as it relates to ethnicities and age and what have you. I described it like preparing a five-star dinner for the United Nations, (laughs) <laughs> you know, and no matter no matter what is on the menu, it's very difficult to please all of those palates. How do you do that? One thing someone said to me early on, one of the first families that God sent to our church, the gentleman had been in traditional black church all of his life, and he loved Elevation Church. And he said, whatever you do, would you please let the multicultural dynamic of our church be organic? Don't try to piece together something that you think is going to throw us a bone as black people within your church. And I listened to him. You know, I I really took that to heart because I think what he was saying is we'll be patient with the process if we know that it's coming from the heart. But if it feels manipulative, you know, if it feels like I remember somebody asking me one time, so when I hear an organ in your sermon, is is that something, this guy that didn't really know much about church in general, so he just said, is that something you're doing to reach more of your African-American constituency? And I said, no, and I just like Hammond organ. I just, it's one of my favorite instruments. And that's the thought behind it is that it almost becomes so diluted when you try to carve it up so many different ways. I mean, I think if there's a purity, I'll give you the example of our worship music because it's one everybody can relate to. When we write songs within our church, we are writing with a 16-year-old white girl in mind who lives in the suburbs and 62-year-old black man who's out there, Al, who comes every week, who grew up singing hymns, who grew up you know, with deacons leading the devotional. And if you think with those people in your heart, if they are sitting around the table when you're preparing your sermon, setting your priorities, doing your budgeting, if those people are in your heart and mind, what will come out will not feel like an assembly of different items that don't match each other. And it won't feel like placating or condescending. It'll feel like genuine service to the people that God has called you to reach. It seems like there's two things that we've gotten so far as that, uh, first of all, that in order to draw diverse people, you have to be a diverse person yourself, that it has to be authentic, and that your service has to be authentically a reflection or the outpouring of your heart. Recently, I was in Charlotte doing the T.D. Jakes show and ran into you there, and I was there because the whole city was divided over racial issues. And as we walked into that situation where people, uh, Black Lives Matter was marching, there was a lot of controversy, there was a lot of confusion, there was a lot of chaos at that point. 
What have you learned and what is the responsibility of pastors who pastor diverse groups of people to take up beyond feeding them the Word of God to understanding their causes and issues? I don't think there's one answer to that because not only do we each have different gifts, different responsibilities, different levels of influence, different degrees of specialty, but we're all starting at different stages. And for me as a pastor in my 30s, one of the greatest gifts God gave me was perspective through relationships. And I'll never forget a couple of years ago after the shooting. In fact, it feels like a couple of years ago. It was less than a couple of years ago when nine lives were taken in Charleston, South Carolina. And I called you and you were gracious enough to walk me through how I might address my congregation because, you know, a lot of my white friends, they might not even say anything after a situation like the Keith Scott shooting that happened here in Charlotte. But I'm in a situation where I realize that the frame of reference of the white people in my congregation and the black people in my congregation, and I understand there's way more to diversity than black and white. I'm just using it as an example. The frames of reference could not be more different. And so I'm talking to somebody who's black in my church and they're they're wanting me to get up and say something and maybe even get to the specificity of policy. And they'll say something like, we don't need kumbaya. You know, we need some real change. And then on the other hand, I have white people in my church thinking that I need to be up supporting our police officers. And then I've got black people in my church who would see that I need to be addressing injustice like a prophet. And they're all coming from a perspective that to them is authentic. And it's really difficult to try not to leave anybody behind in that conversation. And uh, what I appreciated about you when I called you after the shooting in Charleston, every time I've talked to you and different friends that I have who have wisdom, is that you didn't make me feel stupid. You didn't make me feel like I had to be able to do everything. In fact, I remember your exact admonition to me was, if you will just say something, it's your silence that's deafening. So just to stand up in my pulpit and try, even if I get it wrong, even if I don't say enough, even if I'm still learning about a lot of the issues in the criminal justice system, the fact that I'm trying has really bonded my congregation with me and not just the black people in my congregation, the white people as well. It's opening conversations. But you know what? If I felt like I had to get up with all of the solutions or I had to be some kind of reformer or great white hope of unity, I would never say the first word. And so starting somewhere for me was important. And the fact that I was willing to say something seemed to go a long way with people. And the fact that I didn't tie it up with a bow meant even more that I encouraged us to continue the conversation and to grow into this and not deny the reality of it. You know, one of the things that I think was very helpful about our conversation, I gave you some books to read, some movies to watch, to give you some empathy for Black culture and how it exists. I remember when I first came to Dallas, I went to several Spanish-speaking churches. They didn't even know who I was, sat in the back of the church and tried to understand what it was like to be them. While we have one God, we are a very diverse people. 
And we come with different needs and different concerns and different cultures that help to create a comfortableness when we come together and understanding those bridging those gaps, being sensitive to those needs and giving service to people in a very practical and powerful way, I think is our responsibility to disciple them. There is more to it than just the generic message of Jesus loves you, uh, but he's also concerned about what you're going through and what you're going through may not be what the person in the the third row behind you is going through. Let's talk about this. When you start talking about bridging gaps, politics and religion are strange bedfellows. Our country is all over the place politically right now. We are standing right on the brink of the inauguration at the time that we're recording this. Perhaps by the time you're listening at it, President-elect Trump will be our president. He will have the tasks that we just described about churches, bringing diverse people with diverse ideas together. And in addition to that, he has the political mayhem of having people who are politically predisposed to resent his leadership, as well as underserved communities suspicious of him. What advice would you give to President Trump? (laughs) Oh. Oh, my, my, <laughs> my, my vantage point is interesting on this one. I, I want to back up from your question a little bit so I can stall while I think about a good answer uh, <laughs> and, and tell a, a quick story, very quick story. When the church became large, and I think it got the attention of one national leader who has a lot of political influence, I'll never forget him calling me one day. And he wanted support on a certain legislation from the pulpit. And I told him that I respect his role. I said, I don't feel at this point in my ministry called or equipped to do that. And he called me a coward. And it's an older guy who kind of comes from an old school. And I guess that kind of power talk kind of worked in his generation. And he told me I'd get more donors if I supported this particular conservative position. And that most of the people in my church would probably stand with me if I did it. And he kind of politically laid it out there for me. I said, well, you know, I I just don't feel like that's my lane, my calling right now. And he said, well, I don't know what spirit you're listening to, Stephen, but it's not the holy one. And he (laughs) hung up on me. And I think he thought I was a lightweight or I was scared to speak. And so when we give advice to Donald Trump, sometimes I see guys pounding on their pulpits. Well, I'll tell you something, Mr. Trump, or I'll tell you something, Hillary Clinton, as if they're listening to the podcast, you know, as if that really affects change or touches culture. And it sounds bold, you know, it preaches great. And I want to tell you something, Mr. President, you know, and, and then we we got everybody on their feet. And all we've done is alienate the people that we wanted to reach. So my advice tends to be a little bit more embedded. I'm in a stage of my ministry right now where I don't feel that I have the perspective that you would have at this point in your ministry, your experience of counseling to give an overarching piece of advice to Donald Trump or President Obama. My perspective would be more geared toward the people who are in a state of panic over his presidency. I feel like my role with my congregation is what we want to demonstrate to the world at this time. What we want the new brand of Christianity to look like and how different it is going to be than the intolerant, hateful brand that so many people are rejecting, especially the millennial generation. I hope this doesn't feel like I'm avoiding your question. If it does, call me out. I feel like my role right now, not because I'm a coward about it, is that I am watching and learning and trying to create 
uh, countercultural picture of how people respond. I feel like the way that my church does get together and it is diverse, I feel like that is a message. I feel like that is an example. I feel like that cuts through the noise and the rhetoric that dominates the airwaves today. And that's where my focus is. I don't think that's a cowardice answer at all. I think it's an honest reflection of where you are and what you think. But you do face some of the same challenges, bringing together people who have different backgrounds and different ideas about justice, about what is right, what is wrong, what is successful. Let me rephrase it another way. If you assume the task of bringing together a diverse nation whose attitudes were inflamed, what would be your first thing to do in that position to bring people together. It doesn't necessarily have to be a, a political policy. What I'm really asking you is how do we heal the heart and soul of America without saying to somebody, get over it? Hmm. In the context of relationship, a lot of the things that we argue about, whether it's arguing about sexuality, whether it's arguing about justice, the moment that the policy becomes personal to someone, the moment that they hear their black friend talk about their view of the police based on an experience in their life, it becomes something way different than watching riots and protests in the street that is being presented by a media that is designed to keep us in a state of anxiety so that we will continue to watch and feed ourselves with it. The moment it becomes relational, the moment that I heard you describe to me some of the issues of our day, it made me want to study. Our relationship, because of my respect for you, my love for you, it created a hunger for me to see the world through your eyes. And so for President Trump, for any pastor, Pastor Jones, Bishop McCarthy, Dr. Studemeyer, for anybody who desires to lead, a dad or anyone, not only empathy, which sometimes is a buzzword, but to really see from someone's perspective or to hear someone's story, I think personalizing the issues is the first step to creating any access where they can really be understood. That's what creates the hunger to understand. If I have a family member who is gay, now all of a sudden the conversation is a whole lot more than policy, a whole lot more than five Bible verses. Now it's someone that I love, so I'm driven to understand this issue at a deeper level. And honestly, I believe that unless that relationship is present, whether it's black and white, or whether it's male and female, any issue of justice, equality, or understanding, I think that perspective is generated through relationship. I think true perspective begins there, and that's what leads us to want to know more and do more, and that's what creates action. So when people say, it's not enough, we need to do more than just talk, I agree, but we need to talk, and we're not even talking right now. And that would be a great first step to create as many opportunities for that kind of dialogue, not monologue. That's a very powerful statement. Perspective is generated by a relationship. And that relationship cannot be forged if we don't take the risk of talking to people and interacting with people with whom we don't agree. And yet, you and I both live in Christendom, as it were, a Christian environment 
where often when you are seen interacting with somebody who has a different belief system, you are deeply criticized. I see you float in and out of so many different circles. I want to move to this direction. And you're floating into all white settings, all African-American settings, Baptist settings, Pentecostal settings. As you have this panoramic view of the church itself, are you hardened by what you see? Are you concerned by what you see? What does it feel like to be in these diverse settings and all of these different ideas theologically, worship styles? When you're sitting in those fresh environments, very few people get to do that, black or white, to jump the fence, to climb the wall. You get to do that. What is that like for you? It's fun. I I love it. And I... And I've done it. I've done it for a long time. You know, before I pastored, I traveled and preached in different places. Now it's on a different scale. And I've gotten to see the best ministries in the world in a variety of different camps, as well as secular things that are really cool to see. But somewhere along the line, I just learned how to be a fan of certain stuff. You know, I I can come into a world that I don't really understand and find seven things to love about it real quick. That doesn't mean I don't have my list of things that I think are kooky or weird or or even sometimes detrimental, like certain environments I get in and I see the lack of emotion, but I can appreciate the level of thought that's there. Well, I still think they'd be better off if they would involve human emotion in what they're doing, but man, I respect so much the level that they're thinking at. On the other hand, if I go into an environment where I feel like it's ecstatic, but I have no idea what content was delivered. (laughs) I still appreciate the dynamics and I study dynamics and I want to know why they value what they value. So I guess what's kept me from getting jaded, not that I've never walked away from a situation and thought, you know, that was an alpha and omega. I'm not not gonna do that again. (laughs) That didn't fit me. I've had those. And definitely a lot of the things that I do and don't do in my own ministry is based on what I've seen that I liked and didn't like. And I figure I can learn as much by the second as the first. But I definitely have been able to go in wide-eyed still, even though I've seen a lot I go in and I still try to look at it like a student. And then I try to go in as 16-year-old Stephen, you know, this kid who just loved it all and wanted to learn from everybody. Man, I was begging pastors to go to lunch with me and using my only $20 to try to pay the bill when I was in college and filling up notebooks and stuff. And I think now the challenge is that I quit experimenting, that I see myself as some kind of expert. So I've still tried to continue to look at it like a laboratory. I came to your leadership conference for the first time a couple years ago. I was studying the hotel key. I wanted to know why it said Megafest on the hotel key when the event was in three months. I wanted to know who decided to put that on the pastors and leadership conference, how those worked in conjunction. So I was studying the strategy of it. I think a lot of people go into a different world and they look at it in a binary way. I either have to like it or don't like it. I agree with it or don't agree with it. It's a pass-fail mentality. Why can't you like three things, hate three things, and put three things in I don't know box? You know, I just... I don't have to look at it like it gets my approval, like I'm passing it through to the next round or judging it whether it's fit for heaven or hell. I go in and enjoy it for what it is and learn from it for what I can. And uh, that's kept it fresh for me. That's my approach to it. Speaking of keeping it fresh, you have been able to seemingly keep it fresh with your wife, with your children and your church simultaneously having raised a family. I know how difficult that is. 
when it comes to the limited barometer of a 24-hour day and you have got a 50-hour need, how do you manage to balance all the different hats that you wear? There are many people that are listening to us that are not pastors. They may be executives. They may be postal workers, but they're stressed out trying to be all things to all people. Can you give us some advice? I really can. I, I don't feel like I'm great at everything, and I'm not writing my parenting book till my kids are 60. But <laughs> I definitely would interchange the words balance and integration from time to time, because if you look at it like balance, I think balance is a great word, and I believe in balance. I totally, totally get the concept. I just think that it becomes an ideal that's impossible. And when we talk about a balanced life and a work-life balance and a home-work balance, I think it turns into something that we imagine is going to happen one day. The schedule is going to be manageable one day. And we wake up and our kids are gone. As far as it concerns me, I've had to learn to integrate. That means that when my 11-year-old comes to me and says, why do we have to do this? You know, he talks about being public or the inconveniences or something. I have to focus on the advantages. I have to bring them along when I'm having to work. I want them to see me work. Holly and I take a tag team approach on it. She does not make the church the enemy in the eyes of my children. And that wouldn't just apply if it was church. That would be any vocation. She tries to present me as a provider to the children. She has my back on that. She doesn't project frustration about what I can't do. So she's a very critical part of any success we have there. And I'm trying not to rebel against the age that I live in. I'm trying to harness it and even harness the limitations of it. And look at the opportunities. My son said the other day something about we were having a privilege, a moment where we got to go to a game and sit courtside or something like that. And he had that moment where he saw like, yeah, there's sacrifice to it, but there's a tremendous upside. So I try to emphasize that as much as possible. I don't always get it right, but we're in it together. And I feel like if we're in it together and I involve them in it and integrate them in it and don't wait on one day when, but work the season that we're in right now and realize that there is an ebb and flow, it's kind of like a rhythm method in a sense of parenting to know that some seasons I'm going to run up the score at home and some seasons I'm not and being okay with that. That's how I look at balance rather than any given day is going to be balanced. You know, you're one of our contributors for our Pisgah Gideon connection. And uh, one of the reasons that I thought that you would add so much value to what we are talking about at this event is where we're bringing young leaders together with older leaders. When I first heard about you, I heard about you from Jack Graham, the former president of the Southern Baptist Churches, who I assume is around my age. We're definitely baby boomers. And he is just going on and on and on about this millennial kid who is baptizing, forgive me for calling you a kid, uh, but, but is baptizing all of these people up in North Carolina. How do you manage to move in and out amongst people who are old enough to be your father and win that level of respect? And what will you say to these two generations that are coming together about how we can bridge the gap between millennials and baby boomers that Christ might be glorified? Yeah, that's great. Your questions are better than all of our answers. So (laughs) we could hit pause on the question. And yet I think affection would be the key word, probably respect and affection, I think, are transcendent. And all I mean by that is 
when I feel that you have affection for me, I can receive correction from you. When I feel like you have respect for me, I can receive correction from you. If either of those are in question, my defenses are up. And that goes both ways. When I first came to Charlotte, there was one pastor who I considered a pioneer, great church, great man of God. He's about twice my age, and he's built a great ministry in Charlotte. I wanted him to come preach at Elevation, and the experience was really rough. I felt like he was a little bit terse with my congregation. I'm trying to use really, really (laughs) neutral terms, but it didn't go well. And we met about it a couple weeks later. And I was waiting for him to get there and sit down in the booth because I was going to tell him, you know, like, I'm a man too. And you can't come in and talk about me and to my staff like that. I just felt disrespected. And I was waiting for him to get there. He's a little late to the lunch. So I'm getting madder as I sit there and wait. And I felt God say to me, just, you know, very, very significant impression in my heart. You wouldn't like you either if you were him. And I thought about it for a minute. I thought, you know, it's true. The burden is on me in this relationship. It's not on him. I came to Charlotte. A lot of the people from his church may have migrated over to mine. These are people that he's invested in. And even if he's a secure, Christ-centered man of God, It's up to me to neutralize the sense of threat, and I'm going to do that through respect. And he needs to see me as a student. I did not set him at ease. And so for the younger generation, I feel like there is a responsibility to disarm those who have gone before us by showing them genuine affection and respect for what they built, for who they are. And I feel like when we do that, it opens their world to us. They're dying to give to us what they know. They're waiting on somebody to actually ask, and they can't get anyone to open up enough and to shut up long enough to say it. I mean, even for me talking to you in this interview, it's difficult because all I want to do after every question is ask you what you think about it. But you you asked me to talk, so I'm talking. The, The point is, the responsibility from my vantage point is on the younger generation to come with the hunger, to come with the sincerity, And to be willing to let Elisha put his hands on our hands and show us where to shoot, you know? And I think that if we're in that posture, in that position, we will be surprised how much the older generation is willing to share. They want to show us the secret sauce. They want to show us how the oven works. They want to show us how you have to do the handle to get the thing to work. They want to show us all of the techniques and tricks, but it requires trust and That's always gone a long way with me. It's not just protocol. It's not just yes, sir, no, sir, and titles, because all of that can be Machiavellian too. I think it comes down to a genuine affection and respect and that we need to feel like we want to know what they know more than we want to have what they have. And when they feel that way, I feel like it unlocks the vault and we can really learn from one another. Man, you said some very, very powerful things in the process of healing any breach, whether it's between a man and a woman, whether it's between races and cultures, whether it's between generations of leadership. Generally, by the time you get a chance to work on them, both sides are hurt. Both sides have a body of experiences that have fed that hurt and led them to a posture, a standoff where they're not gaining ground. How do we, whether we are millennials or baby boomers, drop the hurt and open the door to let the love and the relationship flow again? That's awesome. I've been using this question for a couple of months now, and I heard somebody say it one time. They said, hey, 
what story are you telling yourself about this situation? And you could probably phrase it better than that. Like, hey, from your perspective, how do you see what happened here? Or what story are you telling yourself about the situation? Because I found out even today about something that went on. And once I found out the way it really went down, I had to go back and apologize. There's a million ways that the way we see the events, the way that we process the events, our interpretation of them are filtered. So I think as simple as it sounds, questions open the door for that kind of healing that you mentioned to ask a question like, hey, how did that affect you? And accusations harden the will and shut the door and bolt the door (laughs) and put chains on the door. And so I found questions to be so effective. And a lot of times it doesn't have to be a deep question. Tell me how I've hurt you. It can be a simple question. Uh, Tell me how you see it. And once the questions start, you know, there's a reason that Jesus utilized questions so much in the gospel because it unlocked the conversation in a way that statements, accusations, and uh, trying to prove my point. If all I want to do is prove my point, if all I want to do is be heard, if I don't want to understand the vantage point, if I don't want to come in understanding what you've built, I think it probably goes the other way too. I can't make fun of the next generation's methodologies. You know, you young people these days, y'all, y'all don't sing it anymore. Y'all don't know nothing about the blood no more. You know, well, that's really opened us up to want to know about the blood. You know, there's a way to have the conversation that opens me up. There's a way that makes me put my fist up. And if I can ask a question that really gets inside and then sit back and listen to the answer, maybe we can go somewhere. You know, I'm down to the last few minutes. I want to get everything out of you that I can. Thank you for your very wise and provocative answers on so many diverse issues. When you look at a church like Elevation Church, speaking as an older statesman, I was mesmerized by the fact that you have all of these different campuses 14, I believe, you've got thousands of people scattered throughout the state and elsewhere who are watching you on screen, singing the songs with the worship leaders, everybody singing the same song in a different building. You come up and preach the message. You're reaching all of these people, whereas in our day, the more people you had, the bigger building you built, you avoided that expense. And I'm sure you might have paid comparable amounts for small buildings, but at the end of the day, you were able to create these intimate site locations that in my day was absolutely unheard of. That model is fresh to us. Tell me about what you like about it. And is there anything that you don't like about it and wish it were the other way? Yes, there is. And Anytime something becomes trendy, people start doing it without understanding why it was done. Like Warren Buffett said in 2008, after the financial collapse, he said, there's always the innovators, the imitators, and the idiots. And the innovators have a good reason for doing, you know, whatever multi-site church or a certain type of investing. The imitators understand those reasons copy the model, do it in less time, more efficiently. The idiots come along and screw it up for everybody. They don't even understand the point of it. And we've talked to so many churches over the last 10 years that say, we want to start a second campus. And you'll ask them why and how full is their first one? Well, we're 40% full. How many services are you doing? One. 
you know, maybe fill up the one before you build another <laughs> campus. Amen. And it's almost like I have a vacation home or something like that. You know, I have a second campus. How many campuses do you have? And we end up sounding stupid. But for us, it was desperation. It's funny that you asked that question after we talked about intergenerational dependency, because there was an older guy who had been a Baptist pastor in the Charlotte area and was attending our church. He took a job with the Baptist convention. And he came to meet with me one day. He'd been coming to Elevation, and he's a big fan. And uh, he's probably about your age, Bishop. And he said, not that I'm calling you older. He's just older That's than me. Okay. That's okay. Okay, okay. I'll never forget him sitting down on my couch and going, well, preacher, you're out of room. We were starting to grow, had three or four services, and they were all pretty full in a high school auditorium. And I was proud. I said, yeah, yes, sir, we are. Felt like a compliment. He said, that's the problem. What you going to do? And I said, it's not a problem, man. It's a goal. It took a, a long time of planning to get people to come. You know, we started with 121 our first Sunday and whatever. And he said, well, here's what I want to offer you. I want you to start another campus. And there's $250,000 that I have charge over that an old lady died and left in the account at the Baptist convention. If you'll start another campus, I can release that money to help you get it done. And I said, okay, yeah. I said, I'll find a pastor. He said, no, you're going to be on the screen. And I said to John Butler, I said, they won't come watch me on a screen. My style <laughs> won't translate on a screen. It, it won't work. And he said, yeah, they will. I said, no, they won't. The guys that do that, they're wired different. He said, well, here's the way it works, preacher. He said, if you get ahead of God, he'll shut the door, slow you down. Get behind God, he'll find somebody else. I think you ought to do it. Let me know about that $250,000. And so I said, hey, don't go anywhere. I want the money. And uh, 30 days later, we had located a high school auditorium. And we I'm telling you, when I say this was not strategic at the time, we happened to be driving by another high school out in the boondocks, asked the principal, could we meet there? And I'm telling this story so that it doesn't sound like we're masterminds. What happened was we were out of room in our high school auditorium. We wanted to keep growing. We needed empty seats. And we had someone who was able to help fund it, but we had to figure it all out. I mean, the first two weeks, my video crashed while they were watching it, and the pastor on site had to get up. It was a disaster. I was so mad we couldn't get the technology right. The third campus that we started, I went out to open it. We had 500 people the first time I went out there live to open it at that campus. Next week, I wasn't there. Next week, I wasn't there. Grew it down to about 120. We realized we couldn't just put the technology and the screens up. We had to have leadership. We had to get a leadership development process. So when you ask me now, you know, 14 campuses, they're not all local anymore. There's a lot I don't like about it. It would be a lot sexier if I could have a camera shot of 5,000, 7,000 people. We just couldn't find the land to build that big building. So you know, we had to find some rocks and do something. We couldn't wait around. What really gives me, first of all, if you could see me, I'm grinning, <laughs> is that what I thought was a young idea came from an old guy. That's the first thing that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> the, the second thing is necessity is the mother of invention. Mm -hmm. And I think that what people have to learn is not to allow an obstacle to be condemnation, but to allow it to be the source that sparks creativity to produce something, even if it's something you've never seen before, and even if it's something you're not sure is going to work. God asked Ezekiel, can these bones live again? And I wanted Ezekiel to say, oh, yes, Lord, I believe they can. He said, Lord, thou knowest. 
Right. You know, I don't know whether they live again or not. And yet the Bible says, God said to him, speak to the bones. And he said, I prophesied as I was commanded. I didn't know, but I prophesied as I was commanded. And there's something to be said about obedience and stepping out there and doing something. We're almost out of time, but there's two things I must get across. Your church Elevation Church has given more than $100 million to local and global outreach partners since 2006. So it's not just about receiving. You've also practiced in giving, and given that $250,000 has turned into a $100 million donation above and beyond the overhead that it takes to run your church. Hats off to you for practicing what you preach and for being a giver and for giving other young churches and young ministries a chance to grow. And the other thing I wanted to touch on, in 2012, in response to a need of a 1,000 mentors for students in Charlotte area schools— You launched an outreach program at Elevation Church called the M1 Initiative that took on mentoring. This is outside of the church, just kids who needed somebody to mentor them as they went forward in school. Since you and I are going to be on the platform in a few weeks mentoring masses of people who have come together for Project Gideon and Pisgah, we are praying that we would be good mentors What do you think it takes to be a good mentee? What would you like to see the person walk into the room with what attitude in order to be an effective mentee? Wow. The moment that you shift your mindset from trying to ask the person who is mentoring you, what should I do, and try to understand how they think, I think you've shifted the dimension of the relationship. If you'll look for levels of thought, even down to why did they say it like that? Why did they choose to tell a story there? When I watch you preach Bishop Jakes, which you know I do every week, and your ministry and and life is about so much more than the sermon, but I watch you give the announcements. (laughs) I want to watch every (laughs) dynamic of why did he choose to recognize that person in the audience. See, most people study their mentors so that they can look like them. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to be able to preach like Bishop Jakes, or mm-hmm. I want my worship to be like. Well, instead of that, try to study your mentors so that you can see like them. If you can see like them, unlock the perspective that they have. Don't you think that's really a different level than just trying to get the techniques of doing it to really understand the values and the importance and why certain things were important to them. I mean, that's the level I'm interested at because I found out asking people, what should I do? There's too many variables to the situation. So if you come to Pisgah, Gideon, and any other mentorship opportunity looking for specific answers to your questions, you are going to miss the systemic part that will not just give you a fish, but teach you how to fish, not just give you something to eat, but teach you how to harvest. And if you can get the thought process behind the techniques, you'll go away with something you can use the rest of your life. Now, you know, you got two preachers talking when you do that. This could go on all day. You know, Elijah told Elisha, if you see me when I'm taken up, you can have a double portion of my spirit. One translation says, if you see like I see, Mm. you can have what I have. 
<laughs> so, so that is the strongest validation in the world. And it's one thing to get a person's style, their dress, their clothing, their hairdo, their car. You can get all of those external things. But Christ gave us the ultimate goal of great mentoring when he said, Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. When you get a person's mentality and you get their vision, you have passed on everything that is necessary for you to fulfill your vision. You don't want to fulfill what they fulfill. Joshua didn't do what Moses did, but he was a better Joshua because he'd been with Moses. I hope that whether you're listening to the broadcast today or whether you're privileged enough to have an opportunity to sit with Pastor Furtick, myself, and many others that are coming in to pour into you at Project Getting and Pisca, I hope that you got something that makes you a better you. Thank you for listening, and have a wonderful day.